Pello, and welcome to another episode of Fascinating Nouns. We are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, don't forget the integrity. Don't underestimate the integrity of that statement because up until this point, it has not been refuted by any beings, intelligent or otherwise, throughout the galaxy. Now, here at this curious nexus point that I brought you to, you and I, we will explore the strange, the unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, so this episode, once again, is produced by the talented Maddie Rotman. Maddie, hello. Hello. So we're going to, I'm talking to a cheesemonger today. That's what you're preparing me for, isn't it? It, it is indeed. So how did this come about? Well, this came about because um, I am a consumer of cheese. I love cheese very much. I have known a few cheesemongers in my day. So uh, I decided to investigate a little further. I think thought it would be fun for you and uh, for me to learn a little bit more about the trade. What is it about cheese that you like? If you had to give one, you know, one trait. Hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a savory person versus a sweet person. I kind of crave cheese and and bread and that kind of thing instead of chocolate like a lot of other people do. So um, hmm. I just think I, I just like cheese for what it is, like the integrity. The integrity of, of spoiled milk, of controlled fermentation, <laughs> controlled rot. Uh, no, that's yeah. fair. I'm more of a sweet person, so I'm more in the chocolate vein. So, you know, if you know any chocolatiers mm. out here in L.A., um, you know, you let me know. Maybe we'll try to hook that up next time. <laughs> Give me some free chocolate. Uh, well, I think this is going to be a great interview. I'm very curious about cheese just as an item, as a concept. So I think this is going to be a very fascinating interview, um, which is appropriate given the title of the program. And I think that I'm going to learn a lot about a substance that I eat a lot, um, large consumer of pizza, especially Chicago style, which there's no shortage of cheese. You know what I mean? I, I sure do. What is your favorite type of cheese? Before I let you go, what is your favorite cheese and, and why? Okay, I'm going to go with an aged cheddar. I really like cheddar, and I really prefer the aged ones because they have a nice grittiness to them. Kind of tastes like you're eating something that's got dirt in it. It's great. Well, that does sound delicious, Maddie. You've, you've really painted a, a nice culinary picture for me. Uh, all right, let's do, like, I can't wait to get into this. Can't wait to learn more. Um, I'm going to give Nick a call and let's, let's do this. I'll let you know any, any new tidbits of information. I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you a call, let you know all about it before the episode so that you can be in the cheese now. I would love to be in the cheese now. I will make sure that you are. Thanks again for putting this together, Maddie. Thanks, Dan. Uh, well, Nick Bain, thank you so much for being here, man. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm very excited about this. <laughs> well, this is a. I, I'm sure you've heard many episodes. I run a very classy operation here, Nick. So I promise, as my commitment to excellence to you and to my listeners, um, I promise that there will be absolutely no cutting the cheese jokes from here on forward. <laughs> uh, thank goodness. And no, no Gouda jokes as well. <laughs> absolutely not. Um, I thought about Gouda, both the name and the smell, giggled for about five minutes, so I think I'm, I'm all right for the rest of the interview. Perfect. Um, I, I should forewarn you, I, I tend to be the, uh, the person who goes to all the bad puns at my shop and, and gets a lot of groans, <laughs> so I'll try to refrain on my end myself. Yeah, I like to keep my listeners. Let's, um, let's keep it to a minimum. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's all right. So now you are a cheesemonger. And gro- I'm a cheesemonger. What is a cheesemonger? What does that mean? Well, um, I could give you a, a couple of um, directions in that. Uh, since this is fascinating nouns, I'd be happy to get into the etymology of the term first <laughs> and then into the reality of the term. Do it. Um, I, I'm, I, well, I, so I'm lucky enough in that um, as, as a cheesemonger and, and as a person in my industry, uh, we have people who come into the cheese world from a number of different backgrounds. And um, I'm particularly lucky in that one of my uh, favorite coworkers uh, comes to the cheesemongering world from the background of linguistics. What? And uh, between Google searching and his uh, background, I was able to get very much into what a cheesemonger is by definition. Uh, I should say that, first of all, um, if you spend any time in the United Kingdom, they'll say cheesemonger, not cheesemonger. Mm. 
Um, that's very much an Americanization of the, uh, I guess, phoneticism of the spelling of cheesemonger, which is with an O, but the British will say cheesemonger. Okay. Um, it most completely comes from Old English, which is mongere, which is a merchant, trader, or broker, uh, or mangian, to traffic, to trade, uh, which is from Proto-Germanic. <laughs> um, Old Saxon says mangogen, um, which is a monger or higgler, um, which goes back to Latin, it's mango, which I like to say, I'm a mango, I'm a, I'm a big old delicious mango, <laughs> um, which is a dealer trader, um, which goes back to the Latin, it's mangonium, displaying of wares. However, um, you can go farther back from that, and this is where my coworker Graham um, comes okay. in. Um, his linguistic uh, research has found that uh, you can find from Greek uh, is manganon, which is a means of charming or bewitching, um, which goes back to the Old English of one who adorns his wares to give them appearance of greater value. And that's what we do. Um, we adorn our wares to give them an appearance of greater value. So that's what a fishmonger does to fish. It's what an alemonger does to ale. And it's what a cheesemonger does to cheese. We, um, we take care of the cheese. We, there's first the farmer who, who extracts the milk from the animal. There's the cheesemaker who turns that into something magical and wonderful. And then we are the last link in that agricultural chain. You're the last person to touch the cheese and make the cheese marketable before you end up taking it home. That is an incredible definition. You went all the way back on that one. <laughs> I went really far back. I figure, you know, if this is a fascinating noun, we might make that noun as fascinating as possible. I love it. Um, I, I am also somewhat inspired, I have to, I have to admit, um, my um, my two primary bosses just published uh, the Bedford Cheese Shop book, and they they wrote a very uh, a wonderful preface about it that which is literally what is a cheesemonger and they go over what we do, um, but but they kind of talk about that agricultural model and where we stand on the scale of that, um, and and it really is that we 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 slave away over cheese to. Um, to make you end up with something perfect so that uh, we're in the pleasure business. Our, our, our passion is that we want you, when you come to us, to have us be your guides through this terrifying jungle of stinky, delicious product, and for you to go home with something you really like, not something we necessarily like, but the right cheese for mm. you, so that you'll be happy. We're in the pleasure business. Well, here's what's funny about cheese, and this is kind of one of the things that that uh, kind of blows me away about it. And you kind of you you hit on it. You did a perfect segue, unbeknownst to you. You said that you guys bewitch the people into believing that your item has a greater value. When you think of cheese, I mean, it, now, now take no offense to what I'm about to say, Nick, but it it's almost sure. like because what is cheese? Cheese is spoiled milk. So at one point. Right at one point, it was inedible. It did something. It was something that no one wanted for so long that it spoiled. So essentially, they were one step up from like shining a turd at one point, right? Because it was this gross, disgusting mass that, as as a as an industry, developed into taking something that no one wanted and turning it into something of extreme value and something that's actually good for you in a lot of ways. Totally. Totally. I mean, we're, we're added value dairy products. We are literally added value dairy products. We have taken milk and made it more valuable. Um, and it is. It, all cheese is, and to be fair, this is all that beer is. This is all that wine is. This is all that yogurt mm -hmm. is. This is all that anything that goes through a process of per fer fermentation is. Pickles, you name it, um, is a controlled process mm -hmm. of rot. But we're tasty rot. We're really delicious. <laughs> um, and, and that is what it is. You know, most, um, I, I would say anecdotally, um, the history of cheese goes back, people like to think, to um, nomadic, probably Middle Eastern um, tribes or traders who kept milk inside of uh, animal stomachs to transport it. Uh, and, and found that inside the stomachs of the same animal 
uh, skim slaughtered animal as the milk came from, uh, it curdled more quickly. Um, that's, that's possibly a basic root for where cheese came from. Although I would say historically it goes back much farther than that. There's a, I think a 20,000 year old, uh, Chinese mummy that was discovered with some kefir like, um, or yogurt like, uh, cheese remains, uh, within the dirt next to it. It was buried with cheese. Um, so some fermented milk goes back really, really far in our history. And humans have enjoyed this for quite a while. Wait, hold on a second. Hold on. Unpack that for me for a second. How can, I mean, doesn't this stuff deteriorate pretty quickly? How can it be mummy old? Well, given there's no wheel of cheese next to that mummy. Um, (laughs) There are lots of little, little little curd bits that when um, the archaeologists went in and and dusted the whole thing off and um, analyzed all the samples of the ground and, and pottery and what have you next to it, they found um, a number of very, very, uh, I suppose, rudimentary cheese or yogurt curds um, within that. And it was obvious the mummy was buried with those, um, which is no huge surprise. If you've worked in cheese for long enough, um, you find out that the Mongolians are one of the few Asiatic cultures to make cheese. Um, again, a much more, I guess, basic form of it, um, closer to yogurt than it is to what we consider um, Western European cheese. Um, but, but where you will take mare's milk and um, put it into a stomach, and then every time a visitor will come into your yurt, they will hit that stomach and kind of turn it and help to curdle the cheese a little bit more, um, which is, again, a very, very basic form of it. But it's been made there for thousands and thousands of years, and it's been made in Europe for thousands and thousands of years. It goes back... Uh, about as far as human civilization, just like beer does. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, you know, there was, uh, on another episode of, of the show, we had a person on who, on a more general term, discussed cultured food. So things that are, like you said, controlled rot. And mm-hmm. basically as, as a form of preservation, to be able to take what you have that lasts a day or two and make it last months. You know, that's what essentially wine, beer, cheese, like all pickles, all this stuff is designed to do that. Jerky, you know. Uh, so, th- so it had like a very – it had a, a, a major purpose when it was – for. it wasn't like someone acci- – well, you know, maybe it was. How did that- – see, that's always like the thing that I always want to know is who was the first guy to look at that milk and say, you know what? It's lumpy and it's separating – but I'm really thirsty. Like I, I gotta just do it. Well, that's the that thing. N- nobody knows. It is, it is literally so ancient that absolutely nobody knows. There is no exact record. People have written about cheese for thousands of years. Um, among the Romans, Pliny the Elder is probably the most famous uh, to have written extensively about cheese. The man loved it and uh, wrote about it wherever he uh, traveled to. Um, you find the Greeks writing about it. The Greeks were really. Um, the first Western European culture to provide a large revolution in cheese, then followed by the Romans, then followed several hundred, hundreds of years later by the uh, monastic uh, orders of Europe. Um, it it kind of goes in waves in terms of how the product has been turned into, into what we now know as cheese. Um, but it goes back a really, really long way, so much so that there's no single origin story. Um, in terms of individual cheeses themselves, things like Roquefort, uh, Gorgonzola, um, various uh, older cheeses, you find some kind of romantic stories about them. And certainly in terms of the very modern cheeses, you can trace them back directly to their makers. Uh, but, yeah, nobody really knows. It's it's a very human thing to ferment things and keep them for longer. Um, as I'm sure you probably heard on the episode involving cultured foods. The whole point is to be able to keep something longer than you normally would. Um, Humans had to go through things like winters. (laughs) Um, And we take those for granted now. We have our nice uh, heating systems and our houses and everything, but winters used to be really terrible, and it's a time when you could starve to death. And it's also a time when you can lose all of the food that you worked your ass off all year to, to make. Um, you know, if you have a surplus of any kind of crop, you don't want that to go bad and spoil and and lose all that labor and time you spent uh, getting that crop. So if there's a way to preserve that and continue to eat it through that winter, 
or, or through several months, or to even better yet, get money back on the market for that food. Uh, that's the benefit of the human who created it. That's just good economy. That's just a good yeah. economics. Exactly. It's very basic economy, but it's a good economy. Yeah. Uh, well, so I want to get into the, the, the nitty-gritty of cheese. We're going to get to that in a second. But I want to know, how did, you, how did you get involved in all this? Like, what, what made you – did you grow up, like, just loving Tom and Jerry, and he'd always go after those little cheese wedges, and you're like, I bet I could give him exactly what he wants? You know, I, I took a very weird and roundabout route, and it's not an unheard of route. Um, I, I would not say everyone who gets into cheese has grown up a complete cheese head. Um, but yeah, I, I took a weird route. My, I mean, I've grown up in a family um, who's always really enjoyed good food. My mom's a hell of a cook. Um, and and so at times is my dad. And um, I grew up on the West Coast in Seattle and San Francisco, two areas that um, were some of the first to make forays in the farmer's markets and into getting fresh produce to your average citizen. Um, you know, salmon flown in the day of from from either northern Washington or Alaska or uh, fresh greens from farms nearby. And, that, and that's pretty wonderful. But um, I, I wasn't really a cheese person growing up, to be perfectly honest. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in acting, a BFA in acting, and then I went to Scotland and got my graduate degree in, in acting from the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. Um, and in the meantime, I know, right, exactly. It's what? Not, it's not, exactly. I, I'm supposed to be an actor in terms of what I've majored in. Right. Um, and, and that will have a consequence um, in terms of, I guess, how I get into this. Um, as an actor, one thing you look for in employment is flexibility, mm-hmm. um, but also doing something that you won't want to kill yourself uh, doing because acting itself is, is a really difficult job where you have to wait long hours to audition for things and, and kind of work your butt off for something you'll probably never be employed to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and as such, I, I really love food. I, uh, while I was in college, I grew into more and more of a foodie. I love to cook for myself. I love to cook for other people. Um, and I got a little bit more into wine and especially food. And I um, had a couple of hosting jobs and serving jobs here and there as young actors will do. And when I moved back home to San Francisco after graduating in 2007, I found a posting on Craigslist that said, Hey, are you a foodie? Do you like food? Well, come work for us. And it was for a, um, one of a chain of specialty food stores in San Francisco, um, now relatively defunct called AG Ferrari. And, um, I went there and basically worked as a, um, deli and specialty foods and wine and eventually cheese clerk there. Um, and started to get more into it. Um, there were a couple of people working at the store then who were far more into cheese than I had ever been, who started to introduce me to the product. And uh, I started to learn more and more about it and get really into it. I found it, at first I was into wine, and, and that was a really fun world to be in, but I found cheese to be far more accessible, uh, certainly less expensive. Um, you mm. don't get kind of wasted when you're having it. Right. <laughs> uh, when you have too much of it. And it's, it's just kind of fun, delicious stuff and kind of weird and stinky, but, but really, really tasty. Um, and then I moved to uh, Chicago to try to be an actor and I got into grad school and uh, grad school was in Scotland. And so I moved out there. And uh, the United Kingdom is a, a veritable wonderland of all things cheese. And really, wherever I went, I sought out the local cheese shop to um, kind of see what things they had that I'd never tried there and, and to taste new things. So in Glasgow, that was a place called George Muse. Um, and I are Mellis, uh, both in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And then I had a residency for a month at the Globe Theatre in London and spent a great deal of time at Neil's Yard Dairy, which is maybe the most famous cheese shop in the United Kingdom, um, but sampling their wares and, and going into there and, and really getting a, a heady um, I guess sensory experience. When you walk into their shops, everything smells like cheese and smells like a cellar and smells like the exterior and, and earthy um, notes of a cheddar. And it's just beautiful. And, <laughs> and it's, 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 it's amazing. It, it's, this, it's this thing that kind of sticks with you. It's this Proustian memory. And um, so I enjoyed myself there and eating the food there and getting nice and fat in the UK. And I moved back to the States and 
than Raptor does. I moved to New York to try to do that and um, scored a job at Dina DeLuca the week I moved to New York, which is a, a famous um, uh, gourmet grocery, really the first great gourmet grocery in, in the U.S. Um, they emerged in the 1970s and nothing else like them existed. And um, I worked there, and as I worked there, I fell more and more out of love with theater and more and more into love with cheese. I had a, a supervisor there um, who was an older French woman who uh, taught me a lot about the subject, um, as did um, kind of my manager of the section. And um, I really got more and more seriously into it. And as I did that, I realized I needed to go somewhere that had um, aging facilities and that was really devoted exclusively to cheese. And so I applied for a job at Bedford Cheese Shop, which is one of the uh, best cheese shops in New York City and one of the best cheese shops in the world. And I got that. And um, my education in the subject began. And I, I really haven't done any theater since then. I, I really adore theater, but it's not, I, I guess, what I, I love doing for a job anymore. I just, I adore cheese. And, and Bedford Cheese Shop really furthered that for me. And that's the story of how I got into it. Isn't it kind of funny? Uh, you know, not to take it too much of a side note here, but it is, it's funny how when you're, there's different phases of your life and that you can be in love with different things and different, at diff and different people at different times, depending on where you are. I mean, it's not like you dabbled in acting. You went no. overseas and got a Master of Fine Arts degree in acting. So you obviously <laughs> loved it, wanted to do it, and then phase two happens and you you transition out of that into something that you're obviously in love with and good at and what's interesting is that not only are you good you are the best you have you have <laughs> accolade you have accolades behind you in so I, let's, I do let's, now it's yeah i mean well, let's talk about your let's talk about the big accolade just to tell everyone why you're such an expert you are a cheesemonger invitational champion of the world you get a is it of the world um, like a belt technically of the country, most technically of New York, but it happens only twice a year, and that's sometimes twice a year. So I, I would say of the U.S., but yes. So of the U.S. So how how into your education as a cheesemonger did you achieve that level of success? Well, I mean, I I guess I should preface that by saying when I get into something, I really really get deeply into it. I I am a, a book nerd. Um, I love reading up on subjects. I have a scarily encyclopedic memory. Um, I, and it was helpful for theater because I'm good at memorizing. Um, but I also just love to learn everything about something if possible. Um, and I guess, let's see. So the Cheesemonger Invitational happened this past year on June 26th and 27th. And I'd heard about it before. Um, but never participated in it. And I actually hadn't been to it. Um, but people participate, cheesemongers from around the country go to that um, every year. Um, I'm kind of wondering how I, should, how I should tell you about this because it, it's, it's kind of a special thing for our profession. <laughs> okay. Um, so how long into – are you asking how long into my time at Bedford Cheese I ended up doing just, this? No, just how long into your – newfound love of cheese like how long had you been studying it before you reached the mountaintop i mean nothing i guess how long have been studying it nothing official i had been at bedford cheese for about a a little under a year actually when no i guess i've been at bedford cheese shop for a little over a year actually when i when i or for about a year when i proposed to my boss that i would be their contestant this upcoming year for the Cheesemonger Invitational. Because I think it hits all of my strengths. Um, general knowledge, um, certainly the thirst for competition. I'm a very hyper-competitive person. I really, really like to win, but I also love to learn, and I also love the camaraderie of the community. And this provided all of those things. And I actually went into this year of the Cheesemonger Invitational uh, because it was my very first time even going to it with the idea that it would be really nice to make the finals, but I don't expect to win. I want to win a following year, but this, this isn't necessarily the year to do it. I just want to have fun and I want to learn a lot. Um, what the cheese monger invitational is, is 
um, one of the few times every year when, when a cheesemonger will be highlighted in, in what we do. There, there are competitions, there's certainly the, uh, several different competitions for cheese itself and cheesemakers. There's the American Cheese Society Awards, which uh, is for North American cheeses, and there's a best in show for that. If you imagine dogs, but they're actually reels of cheese, it's that. Like okay. a dog show, um, where they're all being judged. There is the World Cheese Awards, which is an international competition. Uh, but in the United States, there is the Cheesemonger Invitational. It was started by a man named Adam Moskowitz, who is the head of Columbia Cheese and Larkin Cold Storage. Um, his father was one of the first people to bring uh, a lot of the great European cheeses we know of into the United States, and he, he's followed in that suit. And he really wanted to show off cheesemongers because we felt he felt that there was nothing being shown about the cheesemonger and that we ought to be highlighted and, and kind of shown off to the public and what we can do. Um, the format of the competition changes every year, but basically there's always a, a preliminary round, including what's called the perfect bite, which is a, a news boost challenge. And then there's a final round. Um, this year there were, 50 different mongers competing from all over the United States and two from Germany this year, which was uh, pretty fantastic and unprecedented. Uh, what that included was a written test on various cheese knowledges and cheese practice knowledges, um, microbes, things like that. Um, then there was a blind tasting of five different cheeses. Then there was a um, portioning challenge where you basically get a hunk of cheese uh, and you have to portion two perfect quarter pounds off of that. Um, little variations in, in either under or over a quarter pound get you points off um, to the point that after I think um, two tenths, no, so so point two seven is or point two three is the last point you will get any um, points on the board for that. After that, you get zero points. Wow, very right. exacting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By um, eye, right? You have to do this by eye. You have to, by eye, you, you actually, this year, you could put it on the scale first to just get an idea of how big the whole piece of cheese was before you cut, but then, yeah, it's absolutely by eye. Some people prefer not to even put it on the scale and just go with confidence. Um, then there's a wrapping challenge. You get those two pieces of cheese, and you have, I believe, 45 seconds to wrap them perfectly and attractively in a paper wrapping, um, which is much harder than it sounds. Um, there's a sales challenge where you basically have to emulate the cheese shop environment and sell a array of cheeses to a judge who's asking for a very specific thing. And then there is the perfect bite, which is, again, the best known and most photographed part of the competition. Uh, several, a couple of months before the competition, you are assigned at random a cheese, which is provided by Columbia Cheese. And you have to come up with a perfect bite, a amuse-bouche in a large number of portions um, that will show off that cheese perfectly. For me, I was assigned 12-month Gruyere AOP. Um, basically, as, as perfectly Gruyere as you can imagine Gruyere to be, it is at the point where it's no longer just an ingredient. Um, it can be had on its own, but it's still very versatile at 12 months. And I came up with a perfect bite for that. I prepped a lot of it in my Astoria kitchen. Uh, I brought that prep to the warehouse of Larkin Cold Storage and had to put together 150 portions of that Wow! Uh, in an hour and a half Holy for God. a crowd of 1,000 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I won that portion of the competition. Um, and I got third place, I believe, on the blind tasting and um, got points on the board for the portioning. I, met, I didn't get a single perfect quarter pound, but I got two very close pieces that both got points. Um, I think I got a, full, a fully perfect score for the sales competition, and that sent me into the finals. And the finals are a madhouse. Adam Moskowitz, the guy who I mentioned, founded the competition, is the MC for the whole event. During the finals, he is going crazy. He's wearing a cow costume. He's emceeing everything. He's overseeing all the competition, um, occasionally rapping, uh, just off of his rocker, enthusiastic. Now, when you say, uh, wait, you what do you mean? To... Rap, rapping like the music? Like boom, 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 boom. Oh, yeah, he's rapping. He's freestyling. Like freestyling. He's a, uh, 
when when he's not the um, the CEO of Columbia Cheese and Larkin Cold Storage, he is uh, an erstwhile rapper. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's <laughs> he's great. And um, for the cheesemongers, first you have to make a presentation on your favorite cheese, uh, which we had to have prepped uh, in some sort of way with a display. Um, it's it's literally just points you have to do just in case you make the finals. So I made my presentation on that. I made a very uh, impassioned anti-fascism speech uh, with a cheese called Tortita de Barros, uh, yeah. which wouldn't have existed under uh, General Franco's rule in Spain, but now does. <laughs> um, then there was a on-the-spot uh, pairing challenge. You get assigned uh, one of 10 random products, and you have to jump off the stage, run to one of the vendors who's also there at the uh, Cheesemonger Invitational showing their wares and pair that product with that vendor's cheese on the spot. Wow. Um, I got I got stuck with uh, dill chips, dill potato chips, which I had actually been hoping for, uh, weirdly enough, and paired those with a uh, beautiful creamy goat's milk cheese from Vermont Creamery. Uh, you have <laughs> a speed cutting challenge, uh, which is exactly the same portioning challenge as before, except you're cutting in thirds of the panel, which aren't absolute bitch to do. Um, wow. A third of a pound is really difficult to approximate um, for most people. It's just, it's just a weird amount. Uh, you have a speed wrapping challenge after which all those wrapped pieces of cheese are flung out into the audience, um, which is pretty amazing just to throw cheese at people. Uh, you have another speed pairing challenge, which is uh, with beer. And uh, mm. I, think that's, I think that's it. And you have to make presentations with all those things you, you paired. It's it's an absolutely exhilarating, tiring, wonderful competition. And somehow at the end of that, I won it. That's in, it. Sounds insane. It's insane. And 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 to boot, the entire day before that is spent on education with a number of the vendors um, who have come there to showcase what they do. So, I mean, that, that's the best part of it, is that everyone who participates gets a whole day to taste all these different cheeses, some of, some of which haven't even premiered on the market yet, and we're giving our feedback on, um, to learn all these different things about all these different cheese makers and, 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 and product makers. And it's wonderful. It's such, it's just a big love fest for the cheese community. It's beautiful. It sounds crazy, like... So it's really I'm stuck on this. This blind like um, what do you, when you pair it out by half quarter pound or a third of a pound. Mm-hmm. I mean the density of the cheese is going to affect how much it weighs, right? I mean how it will. How, how do you? I mean if you have to get it to be so exact, I mean how do you do that? It's kind of like in in you know in uh, the the Raiders of the Lost Ark where he's got you know his hand in the sandbag and he's trying to figure out like how much that golden <laughs> idol weighs so he doesn't die. Like you're cutting this thing up and you have no idea at all. Like that's crazy. Do you practice? How do you practice that? Experience. Honestly, experience. Um, it, it was helpful for many people this year, I think, to put the cheese on a little scale and see how much the overall wedge weighed before you cut it down. But for most of us, it's experience behind the counter. You get a feel for what a quarter pound looks like for each individual cheese, for what it feels like in your hand. Um, if I've cut a near-perfect quarter at the cheese shop, I will feel that in my hand. I will know what that feels like. Um, it's, I mean, there's something about it that's almost like sushi chefs, where they'll know what they're feeling in a fish uh, before they put it on top of the rice. It, it's a similar idea. You have to be in touch with the cheese to know what you're doing with it. Right. That sounds like a very zen moment. It is uh, a little bit of a zen moment, but it, 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 it's honestly a lot of his experience and just having a good idea that – if, if you see a, a cheese that looks a particular way and feels a particular way in your hand, you know how much of that cheese will probably be a quarter pound. Mm-hmm. And this happens once a year, twice a year? Uh, it now happens twice a year. It used to happen once a year. It's been going on since 2010. I am the eighth Cheesemonger Invitational Champion. Um, it now Just- happens twice a year. It happens once in June in New York City and once in January in San Francisco. So well, so that's like hometown turf for you. Do you have to go and defend your crown? Like, is there is there a lot of uh, expectation? You know, a lot of people have asked me that. Aren't you going to compete again? Don't you want to win it again? You get to win it once. It's kind of like Miss America. Uh, the whole thing is like Fight Club meets the Cheese Olympics meets 
Miss America meets a rave. It's, it's crazy. But the Miss America thing is that you can do it once. Uh, you can win it once. You can compete multiple times, um, but only win it once. So I, I was thinking of going to San Francisco. It's kind of, unfortunately, a long way to go at a rather important juncture in the season. So I'll probably just go back to the New York one and um, congratulate whoever wins it this time. Well, you know, it's not like Miss America. There's no swimsuit segment, and I assume that's because cheese has oh, a lot of calories in it. Well, that's a, <laughs> cheese has a lot of calories in it. I mean, these yeah, it does. Great. It does. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's still impressive, though. But I imagine you want to go into the Hall of Fame, and don't you have to have multiple wins, or is this not like a sport? Is it really just one time, and then you retire, and then people will offer you jobs for lots of money to be the cheesemonger of their restaurant? I, I'd say more the latter. Um, what I could do, there is actually an international cheese competition, and it's in France um, for cheesemongers. And it's far more formal than the Cheesemonger Invitational, but it's very ambitious. And uh, several winners of the Cheesemonger Invitational have gone on to compete in that. And that includes things, though, like cheese carving, which I've never done in my life. And you're literally carving sculptures out of a piece of cheese. And you're also making these in ornate display sculptures for cheese to be put upon. It's ridiculous and so utterly, wonderfully French. And there's a little bit of me that kind of wants to do it, actually, just for the the pure, crazy challenge of it. Um, I'd love to try. Uh, and and I, do, I do like competition. Uh, but other than that, yeah, it, it's more that it's, it's really a nice credential to have. Um, People might see you in a new light. I've been introduced to so many different cheesemakers and uh, people in distribution and people writing about cheese and just everyone in the industry that it, it's turned me into a known quantity in the industry that I have an in to talk to people who I really want to talk to. And I think part of the great thing about the cheese industry, and, and I think part of what attracted to me it, attracted me to it instead of acting is that in theater, when you try to get in contact with someone who's really well known, who you respect, who is a name in the industry, who's famous, it's really difficult to do. Uh, most of them either have a big head about it or have a manager who's handling any emails that are received and responds to nearly none of them. Um, but mostly it's a lot of egos in theater. In cheese, it's not. In cheese, everyone wants you to know everything you can about their product. Uh, I can contact someone, even if I hadn't won the Cheesemonger Invitational, I could probably contact one of the luminaries in the industry and ask them something about their cheese. And because I'm a cheesemonger um, and someone who is happy to sell their product, they will tell me everything they can about it because they really want me to know. It's amazing. That is, it's a totally different feel. I mean, it is. there's, there's it, no it, industry like that. People are humble, it. but they have pride. Right. And you don't find that, I mean, you don't find that in entertainment, you know? I mean, look, I chose that as my profession, but I understand the difference and how frustrating it can be to not be able to have even that mentorship. You know, there aren't a yeah. lot of people taking people under their wing, but in, you know, in not only just in cheesemongering, but in other industries, that's like the standard protocol. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are plenty of mentorships in theater, um, I, I had friends in Scotland who had wonderful, um, sometimes famous or near famous mentors, um, in theater. It helped that they were Scottish and, and having Scottish mentors, um, who were more than happy to promote locals. Um, I won't say the name of the famous person I tried to contact, but I will say that I never got any response in return. Um, even though I absolutely idolized his work and was fascinated by his process and, and really wanted to know more and kind of be taught more. Um, but for cheese, I mean, I have, I have this world of wonderful professionals and wonderful, knowledgeable people at my fingertips, and I can ask them for nearly any information. They're happy to talk to me about it. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. I mean, at the you know on your speed dial, you can talk to anyone to learn something new about the process or anything. It's yeah, absolutely, that. it's great. 
Uh, so now, where are the top guys employed? Are they making their own cheese, or are they? I mean, like, because it's very similar to being a sommelier, and those are usually in restaurants, com, you know, combining wine with food. Where do cheesemongers fit into this? Is it only shops? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, it, it depends what you want to go on towards. Currently, yes, I'm at a shop. I'm at Bedford Cheese Shop, um, and I'm I'm working. In term, I'm working with creating curriculum for classes and, and teaching a lot of the classes there, as well as manning um, the cheese counter uh, with a number of other people. There are other aspects to the cheese industry. Some people do end up leaving cheesemongering and going to cheese making. Um, I wouldn't say it's that many, but some people really want to get in touch with the farm again and in touch with actually creating the product. That's not so typical, I would say. Um, some people go on to work in distribution, um, and importing, uh, in terms of basically getting cheese to shops. Uh, some people go on to found their own shop or found their own cheese section, you know, a new market world. And someone says, we want to have an amazing cheese section. Would you be the head monger and kind of founder of this whole, uh, cheese case? And, and some will do that, uh, or again, have their own place. Um, there are plenty of cities that don't have cheese shops yet that are just ripe for the picking, and, and people will go there. Um, some people will just keep manning cheese counters. Uh, some people will be a brand representative or will basically be the head salesperson for a brand. Um, I know a longtime cheesemonger who, uh, who didn't found his case, but um, really revolutionized uh, the market he was working with. and. Uh, is now the lead sales and managerial person for one of the top sheep milk farms uh, in the U.S. in Georgia. So it can it can kind of go in any of those directions. There's lots of job openings for someone with that kind of knowledge. There are absolutely, and and plenty of us also do writing. I mean, I, I write for CheeseRank.com. I write a number of articles for them. Um, there's a, a great monger in San Francisco named. Uh, Gordon Edgar, who's written a couple of books. He just wrote an incredible book about cheddar uh, that just came out. So I guess that occupies the the Anthony Bourdain urge in all of us to do a little bit of um, freelance writing and and show the world about what we we like to do. Um, There are a number of different avenues, definitely. Um, Certainly one of the foremost authorities on cheese, Steve Jenkins, who wrote Cheese Primer, which is one of the earliest great um, cheese books in the U.S. It was published in '96, and it's still a resource for a lot of us, uh, even though a lot of the makers of cheese are a little bit outdated. And the um, the scene, certainly in terms of what we're able to import, what we're able to find from Europe, has completely changed. Uh, he's gone on to be one of the world's foremost authorities on olive oil. Hmm. He found a love wow. for that, and is, is now really one of the best people to talk to about anything olive oil, uh, which is. Pretty incredible, just finding a new love out of all that. Same same general idea, but different product. It sounds, I mean, yeah, it, it sounds like there's a lot of intense feelings around cheese. Uh, so when you, now let's talk about the process. I want to talk about yeah. the process of making cheese, because there's, I mean, there's a million different types of cheeses. That's probably under underestimating it. But do you guys have to make, and by you guys I mean cheesemongers, have to make a pilgrimage to Wisconsin if you're an, a U.S.-based cheesemonger? Um, you don't have to, but it's it's really helpful to do something like that. A lot of us cheesemongers will feel some kind of romantic call to the fields. It is beneficial and therapeutically helpful and just really educational for all of us to be able to go out to cheesemakers and see how they make the product, how they put their hands and their souls into it, um, how the animals move throughout the fields and and care for their young and, I guess, graze and, and really how the whole thing actually works. Because you can be somewhere like New York City and be tasting a lot of cheese and selling a lot of really exceptional cheese to customers and have a great background of knowledge about it but until you get out to the farm, until you get out to the hills. You have a limited knowledge no matter what you can learn from the book well so that sounds uh, i mean i love the the um uh, you know the the very 
it's kind of like a meta a meta view of how cheese is made. This how it fits into the the ecology of not only eating but of the world. Um, hmm. Along that topic, like how is cheese formed? Like, can you break down the process of like how it's made? Um, yes, in a, in a basic sense, because again, I'm I'm not a cheesemaker. I'm a cheesemonger, so right. I, I will give you the most understandable version I know possible. Basically, okay. what you have as the base product is milk from a goat, a sheep, cow, sometimes a buffalo, some parts of the world, a camel. Um, you take that milk and you add to it rennet, uh, either traditional rennet, which is an enzymatic extract from the stomach of the young animal of the species the milk comes from. So for sheep's milk, it'll be from a lamb. For cow's milk, it'll be a calf. For goat's milk, a kid. And yes, you do have to kill the young animal. Um, that also comes into herd control, among other things. Um, but, it's, but it's an enzyme that will coagulate the herd from the whey. There is also microbial rennet, uh, which is created in the lab. It doesn't have the same strength of effect in terms of flavor for the cheese, for the most part. Uh, but a lot of American cheeses use this. Um, it's somewhat more affordable as well, and um, is also uh, fine for vegetarians. And it is still a enzymatic product that will separate the curd from the whey. Uh, while this is going on, the milk is being heated. Uh, cultures are being added to the milk, um, lactobacilli and various other um, lactic cultures frequently uh, created from the whey of the previous milking, of the previous cheese making. Um, as those curds and whey separate, you're basically taking all your curds, you are cutting them into either small uh, little pebble-sized things or into larger blocks um, until it's becoming a, a more firm form. You take that curd, you drain the whey out of it, and that curd is basically put into a, a, um, a mold, a, a, a shape that it forms into and is either pressed so the whey is pushed out of it or is left to just naturally drain itself depending on the cheese process you're going for. And then you're left with a very young cheese. Uh, then you get into the aging process. Uh, that curd is salted. Um, and either is um, usually is usually brined, is dunked in a brine of some sort. Um, but in terms of how the cheese actually ages, there are different types of cheese. You're encouraging a mold to grow on the outside. Sometimes it's being inoculated with the mold. Sometimes you are letting a natural mold in the air attach itself to that cheese. Um, sometimes as the cheese ages, you are washing it with a brine solution to attract a bacterium to it. It really depends what you want to do. Um, there are bloomy rinded cheeses like a brie or a camembert. Um, that you want to encourage the growth of penicillium camemberti um, or penicillium candidum upon, which are both the bloomy white puffy molds. There are washed rind cheeses, generally what we think of as stinkier cheeses if they're softer, um, but certainly a lot of the alpine ones like Crier, uh, Oppenseller, which are a little bit funky but not as strong smelling, uh, but firm. And those you're attracting Brevibacterium linens to by washing the cheese with a brine or brine alcohol solution. There are naturally rinded cheeses, which have all kinds of wonderful wild molds forming on the outside of them. Uh, there are blue cheeses, which you're poking holes into frequently, um, or leaving a little bit of airspace between the curds within for blue molds to form, and those you have penicillin glaucum or penicillin roquefort forming in. Uh, I mean, it, it really depends on each cheese. Everything starts out with that, with that milk, with the rennet, curd whey. It's, you know, it's kind of a simple process, I guess. Well, so let me, you know, we joked beforehand about controversial questions, but I think you struck on something that I don't think most people know about cheese. And there is a controversial element to cheese, is that the, the rennet itself is obtained and harvested from young animals. Um, and I don't think most people realize that that is the foundation of most cheeses. It is. And it's an ancient, ancient foundation to most cheeses. Um, you have to remember that as fancy as we may think cheeses are, every cheese is actually very humble. It comes from a, a cow, a goat, or a sheep, and it comes from a farm. Um, and as much as we don't like to admit it because we like to paint ourselves a very rosy picture of farm life, um, there are some elements to farms that we don't like, such as sometimes an animal is sick 
and has to be put down. And sometimes herds have to be controlled. And sometimes to create a product, an animal has to be killed. To create meat, an animal must die. Um, we have a deep, deep respect um, as cheesemongers for animals. Um, we love goats. We love sheep. We love cows. We love to touch them. We love to interact with them when we can. Um, and part of that is knowing that there has been a sacrifice involved for a lot of the cheese for that. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's definitely something that I just I just think it's interesting. Like while researching this, I, I had no idea. And the other another fact of the podcast that's interesting is in some cheese making processes, the bacteria that you're using to curdle is actually the same genus, but not the same species. Uh, it's a Streptococcus bacteria. That's the same species, same genus as strep throat, which one mm-hmm. side is harmful <clears throat> and the other can be very helpful right, in the fermentation exactly. process. Well, and and here you're coming across. Pardon me. Here you're coming across one of the great battles we are facing in cheese right now uh, in the United States against the FDA. Um, there are plenty of these interesting bacterias and microbes and cultures in cheese that when you say the names to your general layperson, will say, oh, God, that's a terrifying sounding bacteria. But it's the non-toxigenic version that exists, the non-harmful to humans that exist. So, for example... Right now, the FDA is, in effect, attempting to ban raw milk cheeses in the United States, um, which is terrifying. Um, Currently, we have pretty strict limitations on raw milk cheese. Um, It it used to be just pasteurized. Um, Now, raw milk is allowed as long as the cheese has been aged 60 days. That's when they think it's been aged long enough for listeria to (laughs) not have any problems with um, with immunocompromised people. Uh, that's their big concern. It's, it's not really based on too much science, but and it's based on very old, bad science, but that's what it is. Right now, they just uh, reduced the colonization levels for non-toxigenic, bacteria, uh, non-toxigenic microbes from 10,000 units to 10 units um, wow. in, per gram. That's, that's insane that that's barely something you can even get with pasteurized cheeses um and what that most involves is non-toxigenic e coli um so when you say e coli to a general person they'll freak out it'll sound like what everyone's getting sick with from chipotle what everyone got sick with from jack-in-the-box the broccoli thing the asparagus thing you name it spinach too Right, the spinach thing, exactly. But non-toxigenic E. coli is a different microbe. It has no effect on humans whatsoever. Toxigenic E. coli is what we have a problem with. But this uh, this FDA reevaluation, which again is based on old, old science and old methods, and and nothing that's modern and relevant. Um, reduces allowable levels of non-toxigenic microbes like that from, again, 10,000 um, colony-forming units per, I believe it's per gram. I, I have to look it up again. Um, to 10, which is well, ridiculous. It's a thousand-fold decrease. Yeah, exactly. And it's only something you can get with a highly pasteurized cheese. Now, I have nothing against pasteurized cheeses. Um, there are some many fine pasteurized cheeses made by wonderful cheesemakers in the United States. What I have a problem with is raw milk cheeses being banned and given a stigma. Um, what raw milk is, is basically is milk that has not been pasteurized. There's a higher microbial content in the milk and thus a higher ceiling for flavor development uh, and even probiotic development um, within that milk. And when you take that away, you have a low ceiling for milk creation, you get rid of uh, a lot of cheesemakers, honestly, in the United States. A lot of people are working with raw milk right now, and suddenly they'd have to buy these very expensive pasteurizers. They'd have to completely change all their recipes, completely change the farms they work with. Um, For those who are not doing farm-fed cheeses, um, it would put a lot of people, a lot of small farms, a lot of small heritage people who have just come back to the farm or have been working at this since their parents were doing the same thing, out of business. So all, the, all, those, all those microbes you're talking about that, that sound kind of scary but are non-toxigenic um, are what are in question right now. And it, it might strip a bunch of people of jobs. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, well, it's happening to a lot of different industries, um, but I, I totally understand. But I mean, it's some there's a weird dichotomy because there are some industries that aren't doing it properly and need to be regulated, and it spills over into food in general and not just other industries. Um, exactly. Well, let, let, so let me ask you. Let me ask you another controversial question. Do you, do you, do you, as a cheesemonger, as a connoisseur of the finer uh, fermented members of the cheese society, do you, does it bother you on a fundamental level when things that aren't cheese are called cheese? Like, for example, head cheese or Velveeta. <laughs> I mean, does it bother you when you see these things on the market? Head cheese will never bother me because that's an ancient term and it's so delicious and odd. Um, I, I do love me some 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 good tasty stuff. Um, it's what about Velveeta? What do you know, think about like yeah, processed plastic? On that. I, I, my problem with so that isn't cheese. That is a pasteurized processed cheese food. Um, what has happened with that is that basically scraps some other cheese making have been mixed with all kinds of um, all kinds of things that are in cheese. Uh, to make it into this smooth, cheese-like product that can melt into things. Uh, I have a mixed opinion on those because I do think there is a place for um, American singles and for Velveeta, and that is for a melting agent within a dish. That said, you can do better. There are better actual cheeses that are wonderful melting agents within a dish uh, that have a high moisture content and nice high fat content that will goo everything out just as well as a Velveeta or an American single bowl. So I do have a problem with those being called cheese. And for the most part, if you actually look at them, they're not called cheese. They're called pasteurized processed cheese food, um, if you look at the back. They're identified, or product. I think it's called like a right, cheese or product. Or pasteurized processed cheese product. But they're not actually called cheese. So that, that is, I guess, a small victory. I wish there weren't <laughs> even the word cheese involved with those. If it was pasteurized processed dairy product, I think I'd be a little bit happier. Um, <laughs> but... I mean, it's a lot of people's introduction to the whole thing, right? Um, yeah, true. If, if someone has had nothing but American singles their whole life and comes into my cheese shop and is like, look, I know nothing about cheese and I've really never had any of this fancy stuff, what should I have? At least there's some springboard for me. Um, but, yeah, that shouldn't be called cheese. It's not cheese. <laughs> So if Velveeta's on the far non-cheese end, what do you think yeah. is the quintessential cheese uh, if you had to pick one that you know, has all the characteristics of what cheese should be? Ah, oh, boy, that's difficult, isn't it? I mean, there's so much. My shop alone has 600 to 700 cheeses um, that we rotate through with 250 to 300 in our shop at any given time. Um, no, no, no sneaking no, no, your way out of this one. You can't slip you out of this one. Gun to your head, can't go back. Favorite cheese defines them all. The cheese well, that okay, other cheeses okay. are Favorite defined Favorite cheese as. is a different issue. Favorite cheese is an entirely different issue and a very difficult issue. Um, if we're talking, let's speak about just the United States. Okay. Because I'd say quintessential cheese, when you have thousands of cheeses in this world, is, is too difficult. If you're looking at the United States, I'd say our quintessential cheese because we culturally originally are descended most from the English is probably cheddar is probably a, a, a cheddar. Um, we have them in block form that have cut into large blocks and aged in plastic bags. We now do cloth bound cheddars in the English style that have been, uh, formed into cylinders called truckles, wrapped in cloth, and then rubbed in either butter or lard on the outside, um, and, and aged up until they're sharp and crumbly. Um, I would say that is the quintessential American cheese at this point. It's in Wisconsin's heritage. It's in Oregon's heritage. It's in Vermont's heritage. It's in New York's heritage. So I'd have to say that. It's kind of strange that it's, it's kind of strange that it's not American cheese. You it isn't. Think, it's English. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's 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 from it's from the West Country. It's from the uh, southern tips of the UK. Um, most likely, the first cheese ever made in America was probably something like Cheshire, which is from the kind of middle uh, of the Isle of Great Britain, um, which was probably made by the Pilgrim settlers once they brought their first cow over. 
But those English cheeses, I would say, are at the very core of the American cheese-making heritage. Even German and Swiss immigrants started making cheddar-style cheeses, which ended up being things in Wisconsin as innocuous as Colby hmm. or, uh, or brick cheese, things like that. Um, I, I'd say that's at the core for us. Now, what about rare cheeses? I was just reading a thing you wrote um, not too long ago, I don't believe, about Lady Blue, which I believe is only sold at your shop. Um, oh, you read that. I, yeah, I read everything. Some... <laughs> that is some uh, beautiful rare stuff. Yeah, I wrote that for Cheese Rank, didn't I? Sure did. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, those those are at the at the rare and exquisite and, and exciting end. Um, the cheese to which you're referring is a ultra rare um, goat's raw goat's milk blue cheese from the Netherlands, from the uh, Drenthe region, um, which is just made by a couple. The um, the husband manages the herd, the wife makes the cheese, and it's sold at three places in the world. Um, I don't. I think it's at the uh, Lemieux Fromagerie in the Netherlands, at Dina de Luca occasionally in New York, and at Bedford Cheese Shop. And it's the weirdest, strongest blue you've ever had. I mean, it's it's like you get all this lactic goat's milk, and then you get this bourbon vanilla and, and strong licorice kind of flavor with the longest numbing flower pepper kind of end to it. It's insane. I've never had anything like it in my life. Um, that's the thing. There's so much variety in this product. It, it goes from end to end, from the really just mild crowd-pleasing, even a kid can eat mozzarella to something like that. It's, and it's all these. It's, it all starts the same way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really bizarre food when you think about just how, like, how much variety there is in something that basically starts the same way for everything. Yeah, it's I mean, edible it biology. It, it really is. It, it goes, because you're dealing with microbes and you're dealing with molds and, and, and fun little bits like that. But you alter those microbes and you alter those molds to some degree and you have something entirely different. You alter fat contents, you have something completely different. You alter moisture contents, it's something completely different. Um, it's not quite as, I guess, chemistry as desserts frequently are, but it's, it's certainly biology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, we're running out of time. I want to end yeah. with a question that um, will bring us full circle to my initial commitment to excellence to not <laughs> make any bad jokes. But I'm, everyone oh, wants boy. to know this question. All right. What what is the smelliest cheese? Because when you think of cheese, you think of the odor, and there are some that have a very foul odor and a very strong taste. In your vast <laughs> knowledge, what's the one that is? Is there anything that's like borderline difficult to eat because it, the odor is so bad? Well, uh, I mean, nothing is difficult to eat for me, but <laughs> for the um, average I consumer, forget, I think yeah. No, there, there was a French one that was, I, I believe, it was a French one that was tested to be the single smelliest cheese in the world. For me, however, I, I can tell you from my personal experience, the single smelliest cheese I've ever had is also one of my absolute favorite cheeses I've ever had. Uh, it is called Tortita de Barros or Torta de Barros. And this is funny. This is great full circle because this is actually the cheese I gave the presentation on at the Cheesemonger Invitational. I have taken a wheel of this cheese to a bar in Williamsburg after having left it at room temperature for several hours and had the entire bar from back to front ask, what the hell is that? That smells <laughs> so bad. Um, it is a raw sheep's milk cheese in northwestern Spain, right on the border with Portugal. It is coagulated with thistle rennet, which is an ancient process that goes back to when, back to the Romans um, and back to when they kind of, uh, I guess, colonized Spain, if you will. Uh, it's from wild cardoon thistles. You have to make a, a tea out of the stamen of the thistle and use that tea as the rennet. And it's a washed rind cheese. You have the Brevibacterium bonans on the outside. It's a rare cheese because it comes from merino sheep. And a whole herd of merino sheep are such low milk producers that only about two wheels of this cheese get produced a day. It's crazy stuff. It tastes like strong, funky, weird cheese pudding. It is gooey <laughs> and ridiculous, and it's one of the best things I've ever put in my mouth. 
<laughs> That's um, crazy. And it is, it's, it stinks, man. It is stanky. It is like, <laughs> like ass and death <laughs> and strong cheese and wonder. It is, <laughs> it's awesome and it's so stinky and so worth trying. Uh, once you get past the smell, um, I, I enjoy that smell. I know some people who would run screaming away from it. I mean, do, do you ever feel that like it? It goes. It really goes against our biological urges, right? Because when you it smell totally something, but, but like you're not supposed to eat some. Your body says, "Do not eat something that smells like death." And yet we sell it for lots of money, and people eat it, you know, by the pound. It's if it's I asked you really to guess one it. creature, if I asked you to guess one creature who doesn't like cheese, what would your answer be? Uh, well, I, I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to say mice. You are so right. Mice Boom. don't actually like cheese. Yes, <laughs> look at you. Mice don't like cheese because you know what cheese smells like to mice? Block. It smells like uh, things going bad. And exactly. mice actually avoid cheese and go for grain when presented the, um, the two alternatives. Um, we basically have – humans have somehow evolved to trick ourselves into eating things that are tasty. But a lot of people's first instinct with cheese is that's smelly. And that's actually our monkey brain. That's our ape brain saying that thing has probably gone bad. You probably shouldn't have that. And we've basically convinced ourselves to get past that because it turns out to not only be delicious for us, but actually pretty good for us in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, whether it's, whether it's, you know, an incredible Gruyere, uh, or a incredible aged Gouda, or even something as weird and stinky as that tortita de barros, we get past it and we eat it because it's just so delicious. Uh, I mean, you, you've absolutely said it. This is You've basically encompassed everything about cheese that I find fascinating because you find it fascinating. Um, and that's really what this show's about, Nick. Oh, that's what well, this shucks. is about. Uh, so now how can people find you? You obviously know what you're talking about. People are going to want to read more about what you have to say about cheese. Where do people get you? Definitely. Well, at the moment, if you stop into Bedford Cheese Shop in either Manhattan or Brooklyn, um, there's a decent chance I'll be manning the counter. Uh, I have a Instagram feed full of delicious pictures of cheese, uh, which is the Cheese Mason, uh, all one word, like the uh, the Freemason, the cheese, not free. Uh, and I write frequently for CheeseRank.com. It's a, a wonderful website full of... Uh, atrociously wonderful cheese recipes about mac and cheese and also lots of descriptions um, of cheeses you might not have run into before uh, that we basically go into depth about and really talk about to the most extent that you've ever really seen so that you'll know what you're getting. It's, it's really consumer advocacy and, and letting you know how delicious everything is. Um, and that's a great website and, and full of wonderful writing both by me and a lot of other uh, cheesemongers and cheese professionals. So that's how you can get in touch with me. That is great. Um, Nick, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Uh, I'm so I, glad to have been on it. And and I got to tell you, next time we talk, I'm going to find all the Masonic connections between between cheese <laughs> and the modern world. That's going to be the next episode. Oh, believe me, my friend. There is a tattoo coming up with all those <laughs> things on it. I love it. Uh, all right. Well, thanks, Nick, for being on the show. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. Have a good night.